The Rare Patient Advocacy Summit is the can't-miss event of the year for rare disease stakeholders. The summit is the largest gathering of rare disease patients, advocates, and thought leaders worldwide. Join Global Genes October 3rd and 4th at the Hotel Irvine in Irvine, California, to take advantage of this opportunity to connect and learn from more than 100 experts in rare disease. For more information or to register, go to www.globalgenes.org forward slash 2018 summit. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. Seeking treatment for a rare disease can be complicated by the poor understanding clinicians may have of a given condition and variations in the way they diagnose, treat, and monitor a specific disease. One way to ensure patients receive the best care is through the implementation of clinical standards. We spoke to Kathy Kinnett, Vice President of Clinical Care for Parent Project Muscular Dystrophy, about the process of establishing clinical guidelines for a rare disease, the role patients should play in that process, and what steps can be taken to ensure that clinicians adhere to them. Kathy, thanks for joining us. You're welcome. We're going to talk about your work around clinical care of patients with Duchenne muscular dystrophy, how guidelines are developed for a rare disease, and what it takes to implement them. You've had a role in this through your work at Parent Project Muscular Dystrophy and the Certified Duchenne Care Center program. I'd like to start, though, with the idea of care guidelines themselves. Why are these important for a rare disease? Well, rare diseases are just what they sound like. They're rare, and so many providers across the country have limited experience with these patients and extremely limited experience in knowing how to care for these patients. So getting the rare disease community together to develop guidelines so that all physicians and other clinical care providers around the country, around the world, know how to care for these patients, no matter where they show up, is extremely important. In the case of Duchenne, how did the care guidelines come about? Well, the MD Care Act was passed in 2001, and this was a bill that was passed by the Senate and Congress and, and signed into law in order to grant several different improvements or enhancements to Duchenne um, in terms of research and in terms of, of care, in terms, and this was all uh, promoted by advocacy. One of the provisions of the MD Care Act was the inclusion of guidelines for Duchenne care. So the money was given to the CDC. The CDC organized expert uh, committee members who were well, committee members who were expert in several areas of care, eight specific, to chair those areas. And then each of the chair selected members of the committee who are also experienced and expert with expertise in those areas. So each of the areas uh, grouped and uh, evaluated the literature that was um, available. From that literature, as well as expert uh, opinion, we developed 
guidelines for each of those eight subspecialty areas of care. Um, the MD Care Act was re reauthorized in 2008 and then amended in 2014, and so the reauthorization and amendment then gave money to, again, the CDC to update those guidelines. So the original guidelines were published in 2010, and then the updated care standards care guidelines were published in 2018 of January of last year. What's actually addressed in the care guidelines? What, what do they include? They include neuromuscular care, bone health. Um, the, the updated guidelines include many more areas of care than the original care guidelines. So there were eight, many, eight major areas of care that were addressed in the original care guidelines. And because Duchenne at that time was a primarily a pediatric uh, indication, those guidelines were geared towards the care of pediatric patients. With the updated care guidelines, there were additional areas of care that were included, and because we now thankfully have patients living well into adulthood, the care guidelines offer lifelong um, surveillance and management of those areas of care lifelong. So the first area of care is the neuromuscular, um, neuromuscular care, so the neuromuscular provider, which can either generally be a physician and board certified in physical medicine rehabilitation or neurology is involved, uh, pulmonary care, uh, cardiac care, endocrine and bone health, GI and GU, uh, psychosocial in indications, so there, um, there's a lack of dystrophin in the brain, and so we think that uh, there may be some uh, indications for learning and, and behavior in this diagnosis as well. Uh, nutrition, uh, orthotics, just it's a very, very subspecialties, um, several subspecialties that all need to be involved in the management of this patient. So would it help if I discussed what, what Duchenne is a little bit before we get too far into care? Sure. Okay. So Duchenne is a genetic diagnosis that's passed, it's X-linked, so it's passed on the X chromosome from the mother to the son, so the son will receive an X from the mother and Y from the father, and if the X that the, that the son receives from the mother is an X that includes the mutation for the, the gene that makes the protein dystrophin, then the child will have Duchenne. Um, because girls receive two Xs, one from the mom and one from the father, if the girl then receives the X that includes the mutation from the mother, the girl will be the carrier. 70% of all patients who have Duchenne are inherit this disorder. 30% of patients who inherit, who have Duchenne, um, have Duchenne as a result of a spontaneous mutation, meaning that the mother was not a carrier, um, but that the, the gene just spontaneously mutated for whatever reason in this child. Dystrophin is a protein that's in every single muscle fiber of your body. It's in the skeletal muscle, the cardiac muscle, and the smooth muscle. And it acts as a protein, or it's a protein that acts as a shock absorber on the inner layer of the muscle and the outer layer of the muscle fiber um, to protect the muscle fiber from being damaged. And when the muscle fiber doesn't have dystrophin, then the muscle fiber isn't protected and is then exposed to even normal um, movement and behavior that then strains that muscle uh, fiber uh, the sheath of the muscle fiber and causes little micro tears, 
and the micro tears happen, then calcium can come into the muscle and destroy the muscle and results in an accumulation of, of fat and scar tissue within the muscle that replaces it eventually. So um, with as this process progresses lifelong, there become more and more muscles that are involved in the uh, the person living with Duchenne then will experience uh, a, lot, a progressive loss of muscle function, range of motion, and, um, and abilities. I, I take it patients with Duchenne awfully often succumb to cardiac and, and pulmonary problems because of Ab- muscle strength. Absolutely. Absolutely. So we all need our heart and our lungs to, to live. And because the lungs and the diaphragm of the, of the lungs, the muscles in between the ribs all help with, with respi- respiration and cardiac. The heart is a muscle too. Um, all, all those muscles are affected by a lack of dystrophin and ultimately, um, don't function optimally. So like many rare diseases, you're dealing with a, a complex and multi-systemic condition. When you go about creating guidelines for such a disease, who do you want at the table, and and not only in terms of physicians, but beyond physicians? So you need representation of expertise and experience in every one of these areas of comprehensive care. So the most important person that, um, the the person that's primarily important for the management of this diagnosis will be the neuromuscular specialist, but in order to coordinate all of this care, each center really needs a a clinical coordinator, a care coordinator. So the coordinator will be the person who then coordinates every aspect of um, care and communication, both within the team, between the team and local providers, because all, all patients need a primary care provider or providers that are more local if they travel for comprehensive care, and also between members of the team because all of these members of the team members need to talk to each other. So you want people at the table who have expertise in pulmonary, who have expertise in skeletal muscle, expertise in in the hormones and bone health because uh, the gold standard of treatment is chronic steroid use from an early age lifelong and the side effects, there are many side effects of steroids, many of which uh, include or uh, involve endocrine. So delayed puberty, uh, delayed vertical growth, uh, and, and, and implicated uh, bone health or uh, impacted bone health. So we need endocrinology involved to help to counteract some of the issues with, um, with the management that right now is the only management that we have to treat this diagnosis. Um, you need developmental peds and psychology at the table so that they can help with learning and behavior. Those are some of the most difficult um, aspects of this diagnosis for parents to handle. You need a genetic counselor so that they can talk to both parents and patients as they get older about the inheritability of this diagnosis, what this means for their children and future children. You need durable medical equipment. All of these patients um, are going to require occupational therapy, physical therapy, and assistive devices to help them function in, as independently as possible lifelong. So it's important that we have many, many people at the table who are able to care for these patients. How open are clinicians who may be experts in their field to hearing from patients and others about the standards of care? Is this ever an issue? Um. The reason PPMD 
developed a certified Jishin Care Center program in order to operationalize these standards. So when the when the care guidelines were developed, there was no there were there was no way to um, to operationalize the the standards that were actually being encouraged. So um, we organized uh, transporting uh, Jishin Care meeting in 2012 that involved 17 institutions. Um, and the neuromuscular specialist and administration from those institutions to discuss what discrepancies in Duchenne care across the country existed at that time and how we could best meet those discrepancies. So four key themes emerged that there were discrepancies in care, actually. Everybody recognized that. Not only were there discrepancies in the care that was provided, but there were discrepancies in the models of clinical care. So you may have received the, the elements of, of care at one institution, but the model of providing that care was totally different than another institution, and one may have been better than other. We didn't know what those models were. There were also discrepancies in the implementations of the standards of care and the uh, perception or the, uh, the perception of what those standards of care meant. So one provider might read the, the, uh, the, the standard of care in one way and another provider might perceive that this means something completely different. So we needed, we felt that there was a need to standardize, um, the, the understanding of these standards of care. And then we also understood that the, that the different standards of care applied at different clinical trial sites may or had implications for the outcomes of those clinical trials at those centers. So, for example, if a patient, if one of the uh, out clinical trial outcomes is to see how fast you can walk or how far you can walk in six minutes, and one center is encouraging physical therapy and wearing nighttime braces to afford a prolonged stretch to an Achilles tendon, and another center is not, but both centers are performing the six-minute walk test to see how far you can walk in six minutes. We can't say that the, the stretching and the wearing and encouragement of night braces impacts or doesn't impact the results of that clinical trial. Um, if one center is encouraging early and frequent cardiac uh, care and another center is not, we can't tell that that's not impacting the cardiac function as well as the respiratory function of that patient. So we felt it was very important that we start a program where of operationalizing or implementing those standards of care and then letting the community know where those standards of care were being appropriately in, implemented. Um, so the, the Certified Duchenne Care Center program started in 2014, and since that time we've been fortunate to have certified 19 now Certified Duchenne Care Centers across the country. And this is a program that... PPMD is especially proud of and has been well received by the patient community, by the clinician community, and by our partners in industry who are performing clinical trials. Well, how does the certification program ensure that clinics follow guidelines properly, and is this a model for other diseases to follow as a, a way of implementing guidelines and making sure they're followed in a standardized way? We think so. The, this process actually originated with the cystic fibrosis community. So they had a process by which they certified centers across the country, ensuring that they, the patients with CF were receiving the best possible care for that diagnosis. Um, we 
have a, a three-pronged process of our certification process. So the first thing that happens is the center will apply for certification, and part of that pre-application is to let us know who is providing care at that center so we can ensure that they have the right people in place. Then the formal application process is opened, and in that application process there are elements for each subspecialty that we that are answered in that survey so that we can ensure that the, the care that is being that is encouraged in the care guidelines is being provided at that neuromuscular center. Once we have all the information that we need on paper, then we set up a site visit and during that site visit we interview as many of the providers on that neuromuscular team as we can again to validate the information that they've provided in the survey. If there are questions that come up or issues that come up, we address them at that time and make sure that we're all on the same page. Um, also, during that site visit, we uh, review several charts to make sure that the care that has been reported in the survey and reported in the interview is actually documented in the chart because that's very important. Um, the second day of our site visit, we attend clinic and during that uh, clinic, that we follow a family or several families through that clinic visit to make to evaluate the care that's provided, but also to um, get a sense of what the communication is between the team members and also between the team and the parents, and to see how the day is organized, to see what information the patient leaves with, to make sure that all their questions are answered. Um, once that site visit is completed, we review we develop a summary. And included in the summary are suggestions that we make um, that centers may or may not choose to follow, but come from our multitude of site visits that we've been able to perform um, and, uh, and include suggestions that may or may not help that um, this center improve the care and services that they're able to provide. Included also in that site visit summary are re requirements. So if we've noticed something that we don't think is being met or is not provided, uh, in a way that is standardized throughout this, our network, our clinical, um, our CDCC network, then that requirement will need to be met before we can grant certification. That summary goes back to the clinic director and the coordinator to make sure that we've captured accurately uh, the, the landscape of that center, and then when we're happy with that then the summary then goes to the certification committee for a decision. If there are issues that need to be um, managed prior to a final certification, then we'll allow the center to have some time to uh, address that issue. If we feel that everything's in place and we're, it is appropriate for certification, then the certification committee receives that, um, that application and site visit summary and they'll vote on whether or not uh, to certify the center. Once the center is certified, then the center is certified for five years. And uh, the, every year we re we reevaluate or readdress the suggestions and requirements that were made during that site visit and give the center an opportunity to really um, show up and tell us how great they're doing and what, what changes they've made and improvements they've made and what enhancement they've made to the care and services that they can provide um, to their patients. One of the other requirements um, of a certified center is to en encourage and enable patients and families to enroll in our Duchenne Registry. The Duchenne Registry has been in place um, with PPMD for more than 10 years and includes information on more than 4,000 patients. So by co continuing to collect patient-reported outcomes, patient-generated data in that registry, we're able to 
continue to learn uh, more and more about the progress of this diagnosis and the impact that it has on multiple organ systems. The other um, requirement of certification is for centers to encourage and enable patients to complete a clinical evaluation survey. The clinical evaluation survey is completely anonymous and it can be done online or on paper and it lets us know the perception of that patient and family's uh, care and services that they've received at that center in the past year. So we encourage patients and families to complete a clinical experiences survey annually so that we have an, an accurate perception of what uh, the care and services are at that center from the patient and family's perspective. All of those clinical evaluation survey results are aggregated and then given back to the center. Uh, again, they're anonymous, so they can look at the, at the uh, perceptions of their patients and families and use those possibly for continuation of the services and care that they're providing and also for continuous quality improvement at their center. So we found this to be a closed-loop system that provides everyone at each point an, an opportunity to uh, engage with the center and engage with the evaluation with the center and engage with the continuous clinic or quality improvement of that center. So we're very, PPMD is very proud of this program. One of the challenges, particularly in rare diseases where conditions may not be well understood or the pace of new treatment options are evolving and actually changing the natural history of a disease is how do you maintain and update these clinical guidelines as you as you go? Well, like I said, they, they were originally published in 2010 and then updated, or 2010, that's right, and then the update began again in 2015-14 and they were again published in 2018. So, the clinical guide, the CDC uh, is tasked with uh, developing a process of continuously updating these care guidelines. As this, the CDCC program um, is able to integrate con up continuously um, updates to specific areas of care. So while we depend on the care guidelines in our process and program or in agreement with the care guidelines, we do have the capability of saying this this is a new finding and we would now like to integrate this into into our certification process. So we're we're able to continuously monitor the literature, monitor the research and up enhance our certification program based on uh, current evidence. What advice would you offer other patient groups helping to establish clinical care guidelines in a different disease area for getting started? I think the first thing that you would need to do is evaluate what body systems that your specific diagnosis impacts and then what expertise you need for each of those areas um, at the table. Like, um, And then aggregating those experts and that expertise will allow you to evaluate each subspecialty area decide how much evidence is available for the management of that subspecialty area and what is just going to be expert opinion. Um, there were several areas in Duchenne that were, with the, especially with the first publication of the guidelines, nearly purely expert opinion, but by giving, allowing, by having providers provide standardized care for each of those areas, even if it is based on expert opinion, 
we can collect outpatient outcomes to evaluate then whether that specific care that's provided made a difference in, um, in quality and quantity of life. So standardizing care guidelines is extremely important for the provision of care across the country, for reducing discrepancies in care, reducing discrepancies in clinical trial outcomes, and, at, and also collecting patient-reported outcomes or patient clinical outcomes, clinically reported outcomes, to evaluate whether or not the care that you're providing is actually making a difference. So I would, I would encourage groups that are interested in, in developing care guidelines to identify what, uh, what, what body systems the, your diagnosis impacts and what expertise you need to bring to the table to then develop elements within each of those subspecialties by which to evaluate care. Kathy Kennett, Vice President of Clinical Care for Parent Project Muscular Dystrophy. Kathy, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you very much for allowing me to, to participate. This has been fun. Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org. You can subscribe to the Rarecast RSS feed through raredaily.org or through SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast manager. The Rarecast is produced for Global Genes by the Levine Media Group. You can also find our podcast, The Bio Report, on these popular podcast sites. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine and performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note at danny at levinemediagroup.com.